Our scripture this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the pastor and bishop of your souls. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Apostle Peter has rightly identified us all. We are that sheep, those sheep who have strayed, who have wandered, who have gone our own way. but we have returned. At some point, the shepherd of our souls left the 90 and nine in the fold and went in the bleak, dark, dangerous byways and found us and bound up our wounds, healed us, enfolded us in his arms and carried us back to the fold. We each one are that little straying lamb, stubborn little lamb, that God in his saving grace and his infinite mercy pursued us to our last steps and brought us back to himself. Do you feel that this morning? Do you know yourself to be that little lost lamb? Or do you still feel like you're 
someone that can take care of yourself. Someone that is really not strayed that far. Someone who's pretty much okay in your soul. Or do you need, as the text here suggests, do you need a shepherd, a pastor, someone who cares for you, someone who will lead you, someone who will feed you, someone will protect and guard your soul, not only in this life for all of eternity, Do you need a pastor? Do you need a shepherd? Do you need the good shepherd? The true shepherd? Do you need a bishop? An overseer? Someone that brings structure and order and peace and wholeness to your life? Someone that can help you exclude this and include that? into your life, your worldview and your lifestyle that will make you more and more in conformity to the image of Christ? Do you need an overseer? Someone who examines and convicts you of your sin and your straying and your shortcomings. Someone who will correct you and lovingly chasten you Someone who from time to time, if he loves you enough, and if you stray far enough, he will scourge you and bring you to your senses and to himself. Do you need that kind in your life? Do you need a bishop of your souls? The practical application of this particular passage is an admonition to servants. We looked last week at the notion of being subject that means to be under order and under law and under authority. We looked at the stratification of the ancient Roman world where there were the elites at the top with the emperor at the very top, the senators and their family and then others and we saw the elite and then the various classes and strata under that going all the way down to the doulos, the servant, the slaves. There was but one category in that societal structure that was lower and that was the alien, the xenoi, the stranger. He goes from the top of the strata, the emperor, and those that have authority over us, and he moves immediately to the bottom. As we mentioned last week, probably about 3% of the ancient world would qualify for that upper strata, that is to be in the elite. That stratum of society was the one that controlled most everything, not just the means of production, but the governmental systems. But about 30 to 40% of the population of the first century Roman world fit this category, servants. And he tells the servants to be subject 
to your masters, the same as he told us to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him. Same admonition. And the same word is used. In the close of the previous paragraph, he said to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God and honor the emperor. When he tells us in verse 18, to be subject to your masters with all respect, it's the same word that is translated fear for God. It's the word for reverence, respect, a honoring of them that arises from a certain amount of fear for what they can do to you if you are a wrongdoer. The civil order trusted into a certain measure of justice, Roman law. There were pretty clear notions of what was accepted and what was not accepted, what was right and what was wrong. And Roman law took precedent over all the laws of the provinces and of all the city-states and all the territories and regions that Rome had conquered and subjugated from the days of Julius Caesar on up to the days here of Claudius, about a hundred year span. But the domestic situation was not necessarily so just. The servant in the household was considered to be a little more than property, chattel, and could be subject with very little review and very little appeal to a harsh penalty. The servant in the ancient world could be beaten. And that's the theme that pulls through this passage. If you read it carefully, you'll see it's it's this idea of being scourged or beaten that seems to bring forth Peter's great explication of Christ and his role as a servant that is borne out in this passage. He said, we're to have respect not only for those who do good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And the notion of the unjust, the notion of the miscarriage of justice, the idea of a kangaroo court, the idea of a total turning upside down of Roman justice is found in the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet the Lord himself, as he endured that ordeal, had a different view of justice. It says here in verse 23, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, as he stood before Pilate, was looking to a bar of justice beyond Pilate's court, beyond Herod's court. but to the justice of God and the mercy of God. And he implores the people there to be mindful of this thing and to see how it works out. He said, this is a gracious thing. The word gracious, there's words charis, but in context, it probably means this is something that will um, 
be to your credit. It is, you will receive credit when you're mindful of God and you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. At the end of the next verse, he said, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He said, it is not to your credit if you are a wrongdoer and you suffer the penalty. That is just out of the, uh, the uh, outworking of a simple justice system. What credit is it then when you sin, you're beaten for it. But when you do good and suffer for it, this is a creditable thing in the sight of God. And from this point on in the passage, he leaves the admonition of the servant in society for the sake of Christ enduring his punishment, whether just or unjust. And he moves entirely to speaking about Christ. Verse 21 gives us a little hint and an echo of Peter's experience. To this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That was Peter's experience. In his young manhood, he had heard the calling of Christ. And that call had said, come, follow me. And that's what Peter asked of us. Have we heard that call? That call to not just merely live in this world, not just merely function in this world, not just merely get by in this world and endure in this world and prosper in this world and or suffer in this world. But have we heard a divine calling, a heavenly calling, a calling that will lead us through this world as though it is a pilgrimage and a sojourn and will lead us to a true home? Do we have that perspective? Have we been rescued from our straying and our wandering in this world and been put upon a straight and a narrow path that leads to everlasting life? And this particular passage from now on is very much reminiscent of the suffering servant. The fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah from the latter part of chapter 52 through and including all of chapter 53. You know that passage well, where it talks about the suffering servant. It even talks about the sheep going astray. But listen to how he describes this work of the suffering servant. Christ suffered for you. The suffering of Christ, the ordeal under which Christ suffered in his agony in the garden, in his being mocked and ridiculed by the mob, in his being beaten by the soldiers, in his being condemned 
by Pilate in his being forced to carry his cross and in his being hung upon the Roman tree. In all of that ordeal of suffering, he was doing it for you. The sufferings of Christ are substitutionary, vicarious. He suffered in our place. He knew no sin, Paul says, but he became sin for us. He was regarded as sin. And he leaves us this example. See, this struck a note, I think, with Peter. He can talk about the emperor. He can talk about later on, you'll talk about husbands and wives and children and, and other uh, parts of the family structure in this, in this chapter, in this passage. But when he got to this idea of a servant, a lowly servant, someone in Christ's sake that had taken upon the form of a servant, humbled himself and become obedient and become under the structure of his day, under the law made of a woman in the human condition. Christ had taken on that status voluntarily, willingly, that he might live, suffer, and die in the place of his people. And the word here that's used for follow is the word that, that describes, uh, it used to describe just kind of the outline of a story. It was a word that described the outline of a story. It came to describe the outer lines or the forms of a picture or of a writing of a letter, uh, an individual letter. If you ever remember back to the days when you would first learning the alphabet back when you were about three, four, five years old, right in there, and how you might just copy over a template of an A or a B or a C and do that. That's literally what this came to mean. It, mean, it meant following the lines of a copy of an outline of a template. That's what Christ is. He's the template for the life that we are to live. And here's the description of it. He committed no sin. The impeccability of Christ. He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. That's a marvelous thing right there. I cannot imagine being a teenage boy and not sinning. <laughs> I don't know about teenage girls, but I know about teenage boys. I remember my sinful life went back prior to my teenage years. I can remember my sinful attitude and my sinful heart when I was in my preschool years. I can remember sassing my mother. I can remember telling fibs. I can remember participating in all the sins of my depravity from my birth. Jesus, from the time he was a babe in the manger until the day he hung on the cross, never once sinned. No guile, no deceit. Well, even the psalmist had declared, all men are liars. But not Christ. No deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. There was not a retaliatory 
act on his part. That's the first thing we do. The first defense mechanism we have psychologically is to retaliate, to strike back, to defend ourselves by hurting someone worse than they've hurt us. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Oh, can you imagine what Christ could have said had he launched a defense in front of Pilate? But as the 53rd of Isaiah tells us, he was there as a lamb. He was there as a sheep before the slaughter. He was dumb. He opened not his mouth. He had made no defense for himself. I've often wondered why that was. Besides the obvious that he was the son of God and was enduring voluntarily that which he knew he must endure. But I think the reason Jesus opened not his mouth is he was bearing our sin. And there's no defense for sin. There's no excuse for it. As he stood there with that grief placed upon him in the garden, as the great burden of our sin and our guilt and our shame of every nasty, dirty, filthy thing we've ever thought, said, or done, multiplied time the population of the history of the world's peoples. What a grief. What a sorrow. What an embarrassment. You just don't want to talk at a time like that. And he suffered that. He bore that. It says he entrusted himself to him who judges. He himself bore our sins. Why the, the writer says, we did esteem him smitten, stricken of God for his sins. But no, no, surely he hath borne our sins. Our guilt was upon him. The chastening the punishment for our sins fell on him. And it says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the moment when Jesus required a human body. The virgin conception the birth in Bethlehem, the walking, the paths of Galilee were all part of the human experience. But it was necessary that Christ have a human body in order to bear human sin and to suffer in a human body the penalty for human sin. If he was not doing that, he was not the second Adam the second man, the second human being, the new Adam. The prophet had said, lo, a body thou hast prepared for me. I have come to do thy will, O God, not my will, but thy will be done. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. And then this one thing that I mentioned a moment ago, it says, by his wounds, you have been healed. 
The contemplation early in the passage is the contemplation of a poor servant being beaten by a cruel master. And that's what happened to Christ. He was beaten. Stripes were laid upon him. He suffered in his body the bruises and the contusions of the lash, of the cane, of the whip. And this is what the scriptures call the bruise. It's a single word. His bruise. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. It's that bruise, that stripe, that infliction of pain, of suffering unjustly upon Christ that brings us our salvation. Because he was bruised, we can be blessed. Because he was hung up on that tree demonstrably falling under the curse of God. Even though he had not sinned, he nevertheless violated the stipulation or came under the, the uh, law that anyone that hung upon a tree was cursed of God. And the Bible says, and Paul says that he was cursed. He bore the curse for us. Only the slave bearing in his body the bruise of unjust punishment was a walking, talking, living gospel preacher. Amen. 